I just kind of stayed in that position longer, mm -hmm. I would not have to work another day in my life. If you can't pay your rent, if you can't pay your food, if you're really up against it, it becomes the all-consuming problem that you have to deal with all the time, and it's exhausting. If you are stuck in this view that there isn't enough and there's never gonna be enough and you're stuck the way you are, welcome to How to Be an Adult, a show for people just like you who've inadvertently become adults and don't know what to do about it. I'm Luke Chow. And I'm Pascal Langdale. And whether you're 18 or 80, we hope to give you the guide to life that perhaps your parents never gave you when you reached the age of majority. We publicize all these ideas to democratize self-assurance. Today we're going to talk about some principles for approaching work and approaching wealth. We're not going to give you tips and tricks or financial advice, which you can get elsewhere on multitudinous other podcasts. Instead, we're going to do our best to let you into the mindset that allows one to pursue and to keep and to grow wealth. There are many of us who have a mindset that is repellent <laughs> to opportunities, to wealth, in your best interests, because we, we want you to be as well off as you can be. We hope to instill these principles in you. I'll start off by talking about my upbringing mm -hmm. and the way that money was talked about when I was growing mm. up. So my parents grew up during the Cultural Revolution in China. So they were literally sent to the countryside, and my dad talked about having to eat like bark or like locusts just to not die of starvation. Obviously, having those kinds of experiences in your formative years makes an impact in adult life. And then, you know, I was born in 1982. We came to Canada in the mid-1980s. My dad was getting his PhD and my mom was working as a lab tech to support the family. Then my dad was getting his medical degree, and my mom was working as a lab tech to support the family. <laughs> and then he became a resident, and then my, he was bringing in some money, and my mom was working as a lab tech to support the family. Mm. And only then did I graduate from high school and then start my adult life. So in many of my formative years, we actually had very, very little. I graduated with a degree in English literature, mm -hmm. which admittedly is a kind of a bougie degree, <laughs> but also one that doesn't obviously lead mm -hmm. to a, a career path. So I kind of like floated around for a bit, took a, on a number of odd jobs, the most rewarding of which was I took notes in class for deaf and hard of hearing students. Mm -hmm. One of my earliest jobs sent me to Los Angeles to interview a hypnotherapist, actually, about how, how do you have a mindset that is conducive to making money and keeping money and becoming wealthy. So at the age of 21 or 22, I, I co-authored this book with Linda Gabriel in, in Los Angeles. She kind of did her best to open up my mind to the possibilities ahead. And I understand more of what she was trying to tell me today th mm -hmm. than I did at the age of 21, because back then I was very much mired in this kind of poverty, scarcity mindset. Yeah. Yeah. And she was telling me about all these possibilities and how you, you can make more money and how money's this rather arbitrary thing. <laughs> it only started to make sense later on in life. So at 23, I started my business, the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis. And I, I realized that I could actually do things of such value to others that they were paying me hundreds of dollars to do these things. And 
commercial validation mm -hmm. for, for, for your ideas is only one form of validation, but yeah. it's quite an important form of validation when you know your passions and your interests are right. commercially successful. Fast forward a little bit. Hypnotherapy is not a lucrative profession. I was not making a lot of money through hypnotherapy. Mm -hmm. And I heard in the year 2011, I believe, about this invention yeah. called Bitcoin. Yeah. People were trading these so-called Bitcoins on the internet. I bought and I mined a few of these so-called Bitcoins. G guess what I did with, with my Bitcoins? Oh, you, you waited until the peak of the market, and then you sold them, right? In 2014, <laughs> I cashed out $10,000 of so-called Bitcoins, thinking that I was an investing genius. <laughs> um, so obviously, I'm still doing hypnotherapy these days. Mm -hmm. And my experience with Bitcoin really had taught me about the arbitrariness mm. of money. And how someone like me, who just kind of thought this Bitcoin thing is cool, mm. you know, if I just kind of stayed in that position longer, mm -hmm. I would not have to work another day in my life. Yeah. <laughs> um, in, in my family, I had a, a father who, who was a child during the Second World War. He remembers his first banana, which is like 1950-something because it was still, you know, restricted. So he grew up in basically an, a mindset of austerity, and he still he still has that. He's had that throughout his whole life. Save, save, save. Don't use, repair. You know the, the whole thing. On the other side, my my mother was she used to carry her shoes to school hmm. uh, so they wouldn't get worn. And then in my family, there's also this big story of my great uncle who profited from the war enormously by making cases for bombs. Hmm. He was a furniture uh, maker in East London. And then he passed on his wealth and then it was just, you know, the family tore itself apart like in, you know, some TV show. So all those attitudes to money were swirling around. So I, I yes, obviously I, I stepped out in the world. At the age of 17, I had my first paycheck and I remember it very, very distinctly. I didn't graduate from high school because I left early. I worked for two or three years in theater, which is extraordinarily unpredictable. Obviously, I went to, to drama school. And after that, again, the perception of the starving artist was, OK, I lived in, in squats for a while. I thought this was, the, that this was a valid and worthy way of living. Right? I equated wealth, thanks to my, uh, one part of my family, as being you know, the potential for moral corruption. You know, all the rich people were mean. And then I started doing commercials. And the commercials were lucrative back then. And so I was traveling all over the world, in fact, doing so many commercials that sometimes I had to remember which airport I'd come through to know which country I was in. So, and it was a brilliant time. I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. And it was a huge gift in my life. But it also gave me the idea of there's a consistency. This is always going to be the case. This is always going to be a presence. And then I bought property and so I did well. But it was an illusion in the sense that there's changing demographic, aging, economic downturn, COVID, you name it. And suddenly, all the certainties that seemed certainties of the past, the way that a career might go, just taken away, which is not necessarily a bad thing, incidentally. There's a quote I love, mm -hmm. and it's attributed to a number of people, but I think the definitive source is Beatrice Kaufman. The quote is this, I've been poor and I've been rich. Rich is better. 
And I absolutely agree with mm -hmm. that sentiment because, you know, just like you, I've been not so well off as an English grad. I've also been better off. It's far better in every way to be better off. And this is a good segue, I think, into our first principle out of the six that we're going to share today. The first principle is that wealth and morality are not two ends of the same spectrum or axis. Wealth and morality are independent of each other. Mm. In other words, someone being wealthy doesn't automatically or necessarily make them into some corrupt jerk. It is possible to be poor and a total jerk. <laughs> when I look back on my life, I was not as nice of a person when I was impoverished as I am today when I'm better off. Just like if I don't feel enough love in my heart, then I'm not as nice to others as if I do feel love in my heart. If I have no money in my bank account, I mean, how am I going to tip that well? Mm. How am I going to, you know, be like generous with friends? One can only be the best that they can be if their needs are met. And in our world, financial needs count as, as needs. Mm. If you can't pay your rent, if you can't pay your food, if you're, if you're really up against it, which I know you've been and, and I have as well, it becomes the all-consuming problem that you have to deal with all the time. And it's exhausting. I, I've heard an analogy where money is like oxygen. Mm. If you have plenty of it, you don't even think about yeah, it. Yeah, you don't notice there's you a You don't surplus. notice. Yeah. But it's when you're lacking in it that it's all you can think about. This is why often people abandon their principles when money is involved. And it's only if you're impoverished and you also happen to have no ethics that then it's, it's not a good combination. It's a Christian idea that the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, the, the quote is not actually, as mm. it's often said, it's often said mm -hmm. as money is the root of all evil, but that's mm -hmm. not a complete quote. The full quote is that the love of money is the root of all evil. And I think that full quote actually is truthful. Mm. Maybe not all evil, I think that's an exaggeration. But money in itself is a, it's a tool. So one can be well off and a good, moral, loving, decent person. I've even kind of made the argument that it's more easy to be a good, loving, kind, decent person if you're financially well off. And I think also, I think we could even separate to some degree the idea that money is, money is a tool, but it's not necessarily the thing that is going to feed you. You can't eat money. So if, for instance, you are lucky enough to be able to supply your own food and you uh, live in a place where you can build your own house, you could say, well, you're wealthy to the degree that you are able to control those basic needs and you have power over that, and that is actually wealth. The money is actually only a representation of what that means. It's just, uh, it's, it's not the thing itself. You know, you can't take it with you, of course, and perhaps that's also... <laughs> Why, why, you know, when they read out wills, that families get torn apart by, by what money goes to who. It's like you've got a double whammy of both grief, then possibly anger, sibling rivalry, and then this scarce resource mentality as well comes in, you know. And yeah, it's extraordinary. Part of the reason we keep harping on principles, I mm. think, is that if one is all consumed by, let's say, grief, or let's say fear or mm. let's say greed 
that's where people make decisions that could harm other people or that could tear families apart because you know, you're acting emotionally and not in a principled way that lasts over time. The second principle I want to share, and my experience with Bitcoin really made this real for me, it's that money is a tool or a technology for us to understand and use and master. Money is not our master. The so-called almighty dollar is a great tool for us to use to improve our lives. It's not so good for worshipping. As we were saying, if, if you can't uh, pay for the roof over your head, you're, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs not being met, and money is the tool for that, it's easy to confuse money and become make money your master because it's the most, it's like you're jumping a step. You're, it's, it's like oxygen in mm. that analogy I used earlier, mm. where it's only if you don't have enough of it that it feels all-consuming and all-powerful and like a matter of life or death. Most people listening to this podcast, however wealthy or poor you feel relative to your peers, you're probably in the global 1%. You probably have enough food to eat. You probably have a place to sleep that's safe enough that you can sleep in. Hmm. You probably have a tap where when you turn it on, there's clean water that comes out. You probably have your at least most basic physiological needs taken care of, which means that lack of money is never actually life or death. Mm. Often we feel like it's life or death, but for most of us, we're lucky enough living in a time and place like this that our most basic needs are met. We can kind of take a step back and see money as a tool we use, and none of us or few of us are literally drowning. So that means if you're lucky enough to be in the situation where all your basic needs are met, and even perhaps if you live in a society where there is a safety net should things go wrong, then it's not a life or death situation. So you, you don't need to make that sort of correlation between money and your very existence, or even the worth of your existence as well, for that matter. Um, but that you can actually start to say, well, that bit's covered. So I need to learn how to the how to make the most of the surplus beyond that. Is that right? I believe that a cool detachment when thinking about money is within the reach of most people listening to this podcast. If you do have your most basic needs provided for, I do believe that this kind of cool-headed detachment where you can view money as a tool, not a master, is possible. That this is not just mm. for people much better off than you. I believe that you, probably being in the global 1%, you can kind of have this cool, rational detachment mm -hmm. about money, and you don't actually have to freak out about it. And perhaps even that cool detachment doesn't matter whether it's over $20 or 20 Bitcoin. That cool detachment remains true regardless of the amounts of money you're talking about. Well, B Bitcoin for me personally mm -hmm. is what really made the point mm. that money's a tool or a technology. Mm -hmm. It's got no intrinsic value. It's got no intrinsic worth. It's not at all my master. It's just this made up thing that human beings invented. Now, what we're talking about here, to some listeners ears, might sound like heresy. Because if they are in a situation where they feel 
impoverished and utterly deprived of, of money and material wealth, then for, for me to almost glibly say that it's magic internet money, it, it, it might <laughs> seem like I'm out of touch or something, but I, I, I want you to as the listener to actually end up thinking like someone who will make more money in your future. And, you know, if you kind of look at people who are fantastic with money, they'll talk about deploying capital, for example. Mm -hmm. That's basically just spending money well. And usually if you're using that word capital, it's large amounts <laughs> of money that you're spending well to, for, for a return in, in the future. If you are stuck in this view that there isn't enough and there's never going to be enough and you're stuck the way you are and you're never going to end up better off than you are, then you, you're not even trying. And I, I want you to do better than that. I want you to try. So the, the third principle that we're talking about is that as a defining characteristic of adulthood, we are not merely consumers of other people's productivity. We are ourselves productive or you could say creative human beings where mm -hmm. we are adding to the world through whatever work it is that we do if we're only choosing half a dozen principles to mm -hmm. share with our listeners then this one's definitely making it near the top of our list where money flows from the consumers to the creators not the other way around so if you want to make money, if you want to make good money, if you even want to accumulate wealth, you absolutely have to be on the creator or producer side of that equation. By the time that you're able, or in other words, educated enough that you can do something of value to society, then you can spend the next 40 years not being like a kid. Being, as the podcast title says, like an adult. And it's a source of pride, I would add, that you are adding to the world, being a so-called productive member of society in, in whatever job you have. One misconception, I, I think, about people who are wealthy is that they're tremendously consumptive. They are, if anything, tremendously productive. So the prolific artists who make a lot of paintings and shake a lot of hands and go to a lot of galleries are weighing the odds in their favor when it comes to being a successful artist. Mm -hmm. The right order of things is to first ask yourself, what products or services of immense value can you create for the world? And then to ask, how do you let people know about this awesome product or service that you've created and then to ask how much money are you going to charge for it our fourth principle that we're going to present is that an abundance mentality the view that wealth is plentiful it's more conducive to your well-being and your financial health than the opposing view which is a scarcity mindset that suggests that wealth and money and riches are scarce and hard to come by the analogy that i'll use is that because you're like a baker right you're a creator mm -hmm. you're not actually just going to divide up the pizza pies that everyone else baked like you're a kid instead you're going to be making more pizza pies for you and for your 
family and for society to consume. And this is why the, the, the abundance mentality, this view that there's more, there's more money, there's more wealth, is an accurate modeling. Mm. It's because we are not merely consumptive beings. We are creative beings. The, the, the artist who takes the, the, the canvas and the paints and his or her ingenuity mm -hmm. and creates a $10,000 painting from it, they've not taken the $10,000 from anyone. They've added $10,000 of value to the world. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing. I have something of value. I need to know if the world values it. I, I suppose what I'm saying is, is that the, again, I'm trying to dislocate the idea that wealth will naturally flow to something that you have that's of value because there's a lot of work involved in letting the world know that it's of value if you sort of mean yes. it's not an automatic correlation no in the same way that there are may, there are plenty of artists who are absolutely superb geniuses perhaps who we will never know there are hypnotists who may be doing incredible work on the other side of the world um that we may never know um, and so, and so that's why I there, wanted to sort of separate the idea. There, there, there are four-year degrees people could take in marketing to <laughs> yeah. answer that question yes, and to exactly. answer it thoroughly with lots of research backing it up. For for most people, it's it's actually not sales and marketing. Actually, mm -hmm. it's it's mostly uh, sending resumes and doing interviews. Yeah. So that that's a much more masterable skill set mm. than you know having to figure out all all of marketing and keep <laughs> yeah. up with marketing. Yeah. Because for most people, if you get a job, if you keep a job, so Someone else is doing the sales and marketing and someone else is bringing in the revenue that they split with you. But I would also say that's also, again, comes under the uh, the point of being wise about money. In other words, wise about how you get it. So, for instance, you know, being having a good resume and having a good interview, for example, is part of the whole game, if you like, <laughs> that's going to come up, the whole game where an employer is going to pay you for time because, uh, you know, otherwise you're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. No. And that's, again, being not intimidated by or not dismissing the idea that even to think in that way is somehow either corrupt or that somehow that, that it's unfair or that you have no agency or power over how to make money, basically. So it's not a zero-sum game. It's not the case that if I earn money, then somebody else somewhere is earning less. And I will anticipate that there will be somebody saying, well... The world is getting cell phones, for example. This is, an, this is an increase in the wealth of the world. Poverty rates have gone down historically over time. There's less and less poverty in the world. These are good things to be applauded. And I can anticipate somebody saying, ah, well, you know, if you've got an iPhone, then there are, are, are children slaves mining the lithium for the batteries. And I say, well, that's not money's fault in the sense that it's humans that make those decisions of the supply chains, of the, the way that you hire and create things. And that actually, if you have good principles in other aspects of your life, that makes you a good principled CEO, a good principled leader, or a good principled shareholder, in fact. And that, that I would argue that if there is a correlation between wealth and suffering, it comes back to the principles of the human being that is in control of the wealth, not the wealth itself, not the money itself. It's kind of like if you have a chef's knife, right? Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be used to like make sushi and to like dice vegetables and to make a good stew or something. But then of course, the very same tool with no alterations whatsoever, used carelessly yep. or thoughtlessly or negligently could could 
mm-hmm. hurt you and cut mm-hmm. you. So yeah, money could be used to like enslave people in mineral mines. Mm-hmm. But that's not actually money no. used the way it's supposed to be used mm-hmm. to facilitate trade and mm-hmm. to go to those who provide the better service or the better working yeah. conditions. The, the reason we have to kind of talk about how money is not zero sum is because there is a very, very prevalent view that billionaires are personally causing the rest of us to suffer. Mm-hmm. Now, let's say Elon Musk tomorrow just dies, right? I'm not going to be any better off. Mm. If, if every billionaire in the world just went away tomorrow, or if the government confiscates their wealth, if they force a sale of their assets, I am not going to be better off in any way whatsoever, and my investments might actually go down if that were to happen. Yeah, and again, I would bring it back to the human that has that wealth their principles and their code and perspectives become the defining factor, in fact, as to whether that accrual of wealth is a net benefit M- or not. Musk has kind of revealed himself to be kind of a jerk. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I'll, point, I'll point to someone like Warren Buffett, mm-hmm. right? You know, he as so he's one of the billionaires who pledged to give away 99% of his mm-hmm. wealth. He's an example of someone who I would say deploys capital properly. He's, I mean, he's very known to deploy capital <laughs> properly, but not just in the sense that it makes more money or that's good capitalism, but also in the sense that he's like a decent person and he treats people well. He is a living example of, of how we don't have to choose between mm-hmm. wealth and being good. Yeah. We can be both. And, and I think it, it works the other way around in that your underlying principles also count when you have no money. On the other side, is that yep. to speak to what you said earlier, is that it's possible to be a jerk, a rich jerk, or a poor jerk. Mm-hmm. The common the common factor is the jerk. It's yep. not it's not exactly. the amount of money. Exactly, the money's independent of <laughs> uh, of how much of a jerk they are. Yeah. So Steven Pinker has written a number of books, and some of his more recent ones are about how, let's say, global poverty, extreme poverty, is on the decline. Mm-hmm. And this is a reality. If you kind of look at the levels of extreme poverty in the world, like, you know, people living in the countryside Mm -hmm. having to eat locusts, it has been declining over the past many decades. Now, if the money or the wealth in the world were just this fixed amount, then how come we're not worse off? Just because people overseas can eat enough food and have cell phones or maybe even save up enough to have a car. The the world itself is consistent with the idea that each person is creating more wealth through productive activity. These observations, for example, that, you know, poverty is declining worldwide, that's inconsistent with the view that if there's a winner on one side, there's a loser on a different side. What's actually happening is that the rising tide is lifting all boats. So (laughs) here's point five. It's that markets are roughly efficient. And I'll have to explain what that means. Mm -hmm. There's a hypothesis called the efficient market hypothesis. And what it says is that in any market where there's the free flow of information, then everything is priced correctly. So in other words, if I'm a hypnotherapist and I'm charging, let's say, $350 per session, Mm -hmm. 
that's the right price because people can look me up, people can research me, and people are paying it. I am not overpriced. And that there are few inefficiencies to be found where you are able to make easy money that everyone else has missed. Mm. So obviously, you know, there is such a thing as arbitrageurs Mm -hmm. who buy cheap and sell expensive basically almost instantaneously. There is such a thing as rent seeking Mm -hmm. where, you know, let's say you hope that the laws pass in your favor so you make money at the expense of others with the government backing you up. But it is because there there are people who will notice the the, the inefficiencies Mm. and then take advantage of them that it's very unlikely that you'll be the first It also means that if hypnotherapy were such an easy way to make money, then my prices would have been driven down, Mm. right? I would only be charging $100 because my competitors force me to, you know, charge only $100 to compete. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that I do charge what I do and people are paying it because there's actually a scarcity of hypnotherapists that my clients feel are trustworthy enough that they're going to hire at all. So what this means is that there's a term that's abbreviated with this really long acronym, but it expands to there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. (laughs) But if you do this simple internet hack, I can show you how to make $100,000 in a year, $10,000 a month if you use affiliate links. Let me just show you on Amazon. You just have to buy Pascal's course for $97 (laughs) if you sign up right now. Yeah, we've seen them all. They've been been snake oil salesmen and hucksters for as long as there's been humans. Right. Well, the the term, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch, (laughs) goes back to, I think, like the 1920s or the 1930s in America, where they would, you know, restaurants would advertise a free lunch, and then you would sit down for the very salty free lunch, and they have to buy a drink, and the drinks are overpriced. (laughs) Often, I think people who are looking to make more money, people who are trying to improve their Mm. financial lot, they fall for these free lunch tricks, assuming that essentially we can find these opportunities that Mm. everyone else has missed. If you instead assume that the markets are roughly efficient, that whatever the price is for something that that is what it is, or or whatever someone will pay you to do the thing, you know, that's roughly about what it is if there's enough people who pay you for that thing at that price. You know, if you kind of assume that, then you're closer, Mm. I think, to having your feet on the ground. Mm. But if in your head you have a certain price for the painting that you made Mm. and people are only willing to pay you $200 for for that painting, then that is the price the Mm -hmm. market has set. If as a hypnotherapist, I'm only able to charge, let's say, $100 because no one would pay more than $105, then my price would be at $100. Mm -hmm. Something you touched upon earlier it is that it can be quite hard to make a living as an artist, mm-hmm. right? Part of the reason, I think, relates to something else you said, which is that that which can be commercialized represents only a thin slice mm. of any endeavor or anything. So pursuits like painting, acting, mm-hmm. and even hypnotherapy, mm-hmm. where there are non-monetary rewards— where we feel good about doing the thing, or there's some kind of prestige in it, for example, these pursuits usually come with lower monetary rewards. I just finished listening to an audiobook this morning called The Creative Act, I believe, by Rick Rubin. Mm-hmm. 
And Rick Rubin is a record producer. He produced a number of records. So he's very authoritative on the subject of creativity. And he says that it's perfectly legitimate to keep your art untainted Mm -hmm. and uncommercialized to work a job that pays the bills and then to keep your art pure. Yeah. In in fact, I think that in some ways the notion that we have of the starving artist that doesn't compromise their art with the filth of money, I think is something that we've got from the romantics. And most of those were already bloody rich. They were lords, they had property, they had an income, but they chose... And then we have the beatniks in, in the States as well, who take that, then turn it into subsisting in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. You know, I mean, it's an illusion, this idea, in fact, that creativity and art can only thrive if you're poor and then refusing money. Or alternatively, that somehow the creative act in itself, it has enough worth that you should do it. And if the world doesn't value it, that doesn't mean that it's not of any worth. It simply means it doesn't have a commercial, immediate commercial value. But that doesn't mean that if you do other things to put a roof over your head, to feed your family, to survive well, that somehow that diminishes you as an artist. Some of the best actors I know do not act all the time. One of the best actors I know actually moved to Egypt to teach and learn about storytelling. And he's he's living his life on the premise that he does other stuff to, to make money, for sure. But he's got that balance that he has negotiated with his desire to live. And that's what any artist has to do, is to be, be able to figure out that balance between the need to put a roof over your head, be a responsible adult, supplying what your family needs, what you need, looking after yourself, and then to say that, oh, if I'm doing that, then somehow I'm not going to be able to be a great writer, that somehow I'm not going to be able to be a great artist, is a false contradiction. Something I say to new hypnotherapists mm. is that if you're already financially independent, you're going to be a better and more ethical hypnotherapist. <laughs> because you're doing things in service of the client then, and you're not just doing things because you need to pay for your mortgage. Art is maintained by the creator being independently wealthy. And <laughs> hypnotherapy um, is also, it's going to be more of a client-centered practice mm. if the practitioner doesn't absolutely need the client's money. That used to be the case with the sciences as well. Yeah. Now it's all like p-hacking and yeah. trying to get into <laughs> prestigious journals and yeah. falsifying data and everything. <laughs> so I, I want to introduce this concept called Ikigai. And I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's a Japanese term that means a reason for being, or I guess in the French, raison d'etre. The concept is a Venn diagram. And there's four circles, what you love, what the world needs, what you can be paid for, and what you are good at. And Ikigai is that very small center of the Venn diagram where you're doing something you love, that the world needs, that you can be paid for, and that you are good at. That is the sweet spot. So if you're thinking that you're going to become a millionaire writing poetry collections, you might have to look at your guy somewhere else. Exactly. So our sixth point is that unless you're very fortunate, and I'll count myself among the very fortunate... Work is just a game you play for money. It's not authentic living. It's not something you have to lose sleep over. 
you only do the things you do for work because you're being paid for it. And once the paychecks stop, there's not a chance you're looking at that report for your boss. There's not a chance you're going to smile at the people you only smile at because they're at the cubicle next to you. So the things we kind of only do because we're paid to do them are never going to be what our heart truly desires. But there are some things we did as children that we're going to do as retirees and that in your productive years, you get to do in your evenings and on your weekends and on your holidays and on vacation and during all the many hours you've not sold to your employer. Most of us have only sold 35 to 40 out of 168. So yes, you get to sleep well at night during those many hours you've not sold. You get to play with your dog irrespective of what happened at work because you've not sold those hours you're playing with your dog. Could it also be the case that you could bring the sense of um, of a game to your job as well in the sense that you're being paid for your time doing something that otherwise you wouldn't want to do perhaps? Um, and that there's no judgment to that. In fact, I would say that for the most of the people on earth, that's probably the reality is that you're doing things to make money because you have to make money. And so then that, that makes me think, well, if you treat it all in the spirit of play or all in the spirit of game, at least you can maybe find some way to make the everyday job not an onerous one, at least not onerous. It adds a bit of levity yeah. to something that you're only doing because of the paycheck. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to do something only because of a paycheck, you could do it while hating it, or <laughs> you could do it and see it as only just a game you're playing for money. So I, I don't want to trivialize people's professions no. and occupations, because if you look at, let's say, a professional hockey player, they're literally playing a literal game for money, but they do take it seriously. They do, at least we hope, they try to be a good sport. So I'm not trying to trivialize people's work and occupations by using the term game. Because, you know, even people who literally play a game can take it seriously while they recognize that what happens on the rink is not real life. They're only doing it because that's what they do for a living. So many of our clients reduce their sense of value and worth to their commercial value, to their employer. But if you told your best friend that they get $80,000 a year instead of you, hmm. and they, they can never see you again. They're probably not going to be that happy <laughs> with the trade. I mean, obviously, if someone is actually like really hard up on cash, that's where their principles might be compromised, as we discussed before. But if your friend is, you know, if his cup is full, if he's all right, then he's going to rather have you than the money. And your friend sees you clearly in not just reducing you to a dollar figure the way your boss does. I mean, for better or for worse, the people you deal with at work, colleagues, your employer, customers, they see you as in some way instrumental to them. So, you know, how much do you cost for the company and how much money can you bring in? And let's hope you bring in more than you cost or else how could we keep you there? None of your friends see you like this, I hope. <laughs> dogs don't even see you like this. So it's your friends and dogs who see you clearly. It's your boss who sees you through a lens of how much money. 
So perhaps there's like a, a hierarchy of values, should we say. So we start off with the intrinsic self-worth that is inviolable and is simply because you are a living, breathing human being. And then you've got the familial or your friends as well. That I, I, Maybe close friends would be in that. You, you have value to them, they have value to you. And then after that, you have social. That's the greater value that you provide to the society around you. And then perhaps then it's economic value after that. But if you define the other three by your economic value, you're going to be in trouble. Yep. And I want to point out, you don't really treat your loved ones like this, <laughs> right? So if your partner loses their job, you're probably going to be supportive. You're probably going to help them find a new one. You're probably going to help them feel that they're worthy, even though they just lost their job. If you're a decent partner at all, to treat yourself is also having intrinsic value yeah. and still your value to your family mm -hmm. and still social value, irrespective of your economic contributions to the world. This is unhypocritical. Yeah. This is the height of inclusivity. Thank you so much for listening. I hope we've been able to offer some value to you. The kinds of things we talk about on this podcast, we do give to clients privately in hypnotherapy sessions. If you are interested in working with either me or Pascal, please contact the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis at www.morpheusclinic.com. And if you like the sorts of things that we're saying and proposing, then you can continue to follow us uh, on YouTube at Morpheus Hypnosis or at podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so on, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, we look forward to sharing our thoughts in the next episode, which I believe is... Episode 10 is going to be about how to be a leader. Now, if you're in the working world enough years and you handle yourself well and you catch the attention of people who want you to lead groups, then you're going to end up as a leader. You're going to end up having to do public speaking. And that's what we're going to talk about next episode. Click the subscribe button and we look forward to sharing some more stuff in the next session. Bye.